So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Inside the Mind of Champions in 2024. I really hope that you managed to take some time out with your family and friends over the festive period and that you're slowly warming up into the year ahead. I know your podcast and social feeds will probably be spilling over with gurus telling you to jump into an ice bath while drinking beetroot juice and nasal breathing, so I didn't want to add to that. Instead, I wanted to showcase someone who has a truly remarkable story. He was born in Kent, England, 10 weeks premature and diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Encountering lots of adversity and enduring many operations on his lower legs and feet, he was supported by a loving family and found a passion for golf. Now 24, this passion and competitive spirit have driven him to become the world's number one player in disability golf. His story is one of true resilience, optimism and determination. And I think it's just the kind of story we need to hear as we embark in the new year. You'll hear how he's overcome some of the biggest challenges of his life, how he stays focused under pressure and how he embraces daily life with optimism and zest. These are all so relevant to us today. Here's my interview with the inspirational Kip Popert. So firstly, congratulations, Kip, on getting to be the number one disability golfer. I'm thrilled to meet you and I'm really excited to hear your story. For those people that haven't heard your background, could you just give us a quick introduction and a bit of a career to date? Yeah, sure thing. So I um, I was I was born in Seven Oaks, Kent, um, southeast of England. Um, I was I'm the oldest of three siblings, uh, four siblings, including myself. Um, and I've been very fortunate to have two amazing parents who are both doctors, which was sort of like a uh, win in the lottery when you consider what I'm trying to achieve and what I uh, want to go on and uh, do with my career in life. Um, I was born 10 weeks premature um, and that led to me developing what well, being born with cerebral palsy and the types called spastic diplegia. And so for your listeners, the way that affects my legs is it means my muscles are very tight and contracted. Uh, so my hamstrings are tight, calf muscles are tight um, and just very, uh, yeah, just very short. And and that's meant that I've had a handful of operations, um, took length from my calves when I was young, um, was in the, I don't know, 
think it's like the life support stuff for t- six or ten weeks before I so my mum my always says that I was born 10 weeks premature and I came home before I was meant to be born and I was in you know life support for seven weeks and I think you know I often think how that must have been for them you know that mustn't you know everyone's going through life everyone it's everyone's first time at life you know and I was their first kid and uh you must have felt a bit helpless at times but uh yeah I'm very fortunate to have them in my life and um, yeah, so back to what the cerebral palsy means is it means that my legs are very tight and contracted and that's affected the way I walk. Um, I've had 10 or 11 operations um, from calf lengthening, hamstring stuff to uh, full foot reconstruction. So because of the way I walk on my tiptoes, um, for your viewers, um, if you were to do a calf raise, that's sort of how my calves are or how my feet work all the time. So obviously that put growing up, your bones aren't fully formed or and so that put pressures through my feet. And developed humongous bunions um, and just foot deformities and pain. Um, but I think people often ask me how I got through that sort of period. And to be honest, it's, <laughs> I didn't know any other life apart from it. It's just it is what it is. You just get on with it. And I never really never took the attitude of oh poor little old me. If that makes sense, I think I was always excited. I think all the operations meant I was getting better. So I've been on an upward trend. Upward trend um so I knew that you know it was nerve-wracking I was uh, going into hospitals and you know being knocked out and then waking up and all I'd be thinking can I win a major you know I just, if I just get this foot done will it mean I can win a major or you know give me a chance you know um and but to be honest I feel like I could try win a major off one leg I think I just have that attitude where you know it's more maybe I won't do it maybe I will but that attitude of I think with hard work I can it's always been pro- quite prevalent in my life um and yeah, so uh, yeah, that's about it. But I've had operations from, I mean, the most recent was just a year and a bit ago, um, a f- toe fusion to stop like horrendous arthritis that was very, very sore. Um, but I used to, I used to enjoy the fact my feet hurt. I think I maybe pushed, I wouldn't say I pushed myself too hard, but everyone would always say, come on, kid, you know, don't push yourself too hard. And I'd sort of be like, well, I want to achieve great things. That's why I do it. You know, this is why I'm at the golf club 12 hours a day. Uh, putting my feet in an ice bucket at lunchtime just so I could practice more um, and I think I always used to think the mental resilience to keep going when I was in pain and sore was is only going to hold me in good stead in tournaments so yeah that's about it. So if we go back to those early years you're having sort of three months recovery after these you know major uh, surgeries and I can imagine being in a, a a young boy in a school and a playground where everyone's running around and you know racing past you must have been quite difficult what what did you learn from those early days about resilience and you know trying to be defiant and keep your ambition um but all my all my cousins were very good sportsmen I have three three male cousins and uh, on my mum's side and um one um younger cousin called Ruby as well um all very good rugby players Ruby's just got into England trials um my cousin Archie sadly passed away four four years ago now and he passed away making his professional debut um which was quite sad but I was always surrounded by people that were very quick very strong and we always played rugby and stuff in in the garden obviously I wanted to probably play football and not get knocked over but my mum my family no one ever bubble wrapped me and it just it I don't know, maybe because of that, it meant my attitude was that, or maybe it's because they saw what my attitude was like and knew they didn't need to. I, I don't know. I don't remember being five years old, but um, 
I think that's quite powerful when the people that love you the most never took it easy on me, never, you know, Archie would run at me as hard as I could. I remember him knocking me into a goalpost once, you know, ch- uh, bulldozing me with his rugby ball. And I think that's that's powerful, you know, when I never got treated any different. So I didn't, all I saw was, right, how we got to go for his ankles sort of thing. Um, but yeah, so back to school, I... Uh, it was it was quite tough you know people would kids are awesome I think kids are incredible but they also can be quite blunt and mean um, without realizing and you all grow up and realize oh maybe I shouldn't have said that thing or something but I think I always just took it as I maybe knew that weirdly I don't know why I sort of knew oh they're not gonna you know they're probably gonna regret saying that when they're older just because no one likes being mean do they really Um, and I think I so I didn't really uh, let it bother me or get angry with anyone I just sort of was like fair enough I do walk funny you know um but I mean I remember I was in the football group at my first primary school and my best friend was the best and he's still my best friend now um was the best footballer in the school and again never took it easy on me always challenged me as hard as he could but would be the first person to pick me up which you know that's how friendships are born I think and um the the team the school team it's only a small school got you know, we were going for their first ever away game. And I, you know, I was in the football team and everyone, even the parents, thought I, I would be in the team. And one of the teachers, um, the team list came out and there was a kid that really wasn't a footballer at all. I mean, I was not much of a footballer, let's be honest. But, um, you know, uh, he got picked over me and the sort of parents asked a few questions. And it basically was that the school were worried that I'd get hurt um, and didn't want, you know, me to... And, I think when I heard that, I think that was sort of like, just sort of, oh, like I I don't care if I get hurt, like I just want to win, you know. That's and I think my parents found that not tough, but you know that just that. I mean, I'm 25 years old and I still think about that moment, and I think that that's quite a powerful thing, you know. That I just at seven years old, I had that mentality of you know, I couldn't care who I go against, I just want to win and have fun. Um, but yeah, I think school was tough. I had a lot of operations, was out. In primary school, I remember playing with crutches in the foot, going in goal um, with my feet in a boot. But I don't know. I just never. It that's that's the only life I've known. I've never known what normal legs are like. I think everyone in life has crosses to bear, um, and that these are mine. And really, in in the grand scheme of things, they're not that bad. You know, my legs work pretty well, and also uh, people have to go through a lot tougher things in life. So. Yeah, it's brilliant. We hear the the term disabilities, don't we? But uh, you're a a great um, optimist and incredibly resilient, and you're focusing on your abilities, which are many. And uh, you know, it's easy to see how people can get bitter about challenges that they face or setbacks that they have. But that uh, optimism and um, resilience is certainly infectious. To listen to you talk about that. Yeah, no, I, I just think, as I say, I've just been surrounded by it my whole life. Um, my mum and dad are fairly, I don't know, they're just normal people, but they, you know, my my dad gets up. At, he, I think my wanting to do a career I'm fully in love with came from watching my dad. Um, he's a surgeon in London, a urologist, so prostate cancer, and he just absolutely loves what he does. I mean, I've never seen anyone work so hard. I've met know about Djokovic and you know obviously he works incredibly hard but I would put my dad and that's not just because it's my dad I would anyone that speaks to my dad you just hear this very uh wouldn't, you would never know that he's done incredible things if that makes sense and he just seems to just go about it like it's normal and I then see in 
I saw a news article a few months ago and he'd done like, uh, you know, this surgery that or this procedure and stuff that was a world first. And I'm just like, that's that's weird. You know, he's the person that sits at my dinner table, you know, but he used to get up at six. I'd come down thinking I'm all motivated at 6 a.m. and he'd be leaving the house at 5.30. Then he'd get back at 9 p.m. and he just absolutely loves what he does. Um, so I think maybe that for me doing golf that I realised, oh, I'm, I love golf and this is what I want to do. Um, and my mum's just always no excuses really just always so calming and so positive so I grew up with that and then I there's a saying that people might if they research me will hear me say a lot which is press on which came from my dad's dad um such a short snappy mantra he used to say it to all his um children or press on independently he'd say but shortened to press on and I think when I was six or seven hearing that you mentioned or I mentioned getting knocked down by Archie Finney and Cammy, you know always maybe as you say having playing against people that are faster and quicker than me and I think you know it's pretty pretty nice little saying to have in your head that just I was like it doesn't really matter to be honest I'll just press on you know I'll just you know and yeah I think it's quite easy when you've been surrounded by such awesome people and and where did that love for golf spark um so my my as I mentioned I've got three other siblings Cole Mitzi and Sky um they all are incredible in their own right you know they do um Mitzi's wants to be in the West End Sky's a physio and Cole's an artist incredible artist um but growing up obviously that's you know a lot of time for my mum and dad to have to share between you know four kids um and I was just very fortunate that my I was the first born and that my dad uh learnt golf when I was born um so he would sit in front of Bobby Jones videos and because I had cerebral palsy I couldn't really move or walk till I was three or four um so when he sat me watching it, I didn't really have a choice. And luckily I watched Bobby Jones' swing and not his. But um, yeah, I just, it was four hours with my dad, to be honest. It was just, you know, he'd, he'd always go, I remember being like, uh, or I remember in my head, I don't know how old I'd be, but it would always be like, oh, Kip, go ask mum if we can go to the driving range. And I would, you know, back then I just asked so I could be with my dad and just hang out. Um, and then, you know, that competitive streak. My dad is very competitive um, in, in the nicest way possible, not a pushy way, never forced me to do golf, never uh, forced me to shoot good scores or, you know, put any pressure on me like that. But, you know, he does like to win uh, and so do I. And I think, you know, then you start from going from the driving range, you then go to playing your dad and, you know, who doesn't want to beat your dad? You know, everyone does. Um, you think they're, the, you know, a superhero when you're a kid. So it's like, you know, it's and then beat him and then I want to beat other people so I think that's where I, my love for golf came in and also because I need my legs in golf I was I always say I used to hustle the pool tables I went to a school called Bethany school and I used to just there was a six form pool table and I'd just be in there at lunchtime pound on the table and you'd be getting your lunch money sort of thing um so I, I always thought maybe I'd love to do pool I don't know maybe when golf's over I'd love to give that a crack and learn that but to an elite level but um I think because I need my legs in golf that, you know, it's whatever I achieve. I mean, it, uh, it could be seen as being a not a higher achievement than what other people have achieved. But obviously, I've had a few setbacks and that's not, you know, everyone has setbacks. So I think everyone's got an incredible story. So you took that competitive spirit and beat your dad. Um, but tell us about your first tournament where you had that success and had your first win. What did that feel like? Oh, I remember I remember being like eight or nine and I hit this cut hybrid uh, around a tree onto a green and I think it was to win I'm pretty sure it was to win and I remember being like that was pretty cool 
I was like, that was out of the rough, cut hybrid. Didn't really know what I was doing, but I just had a natural swing, I guess. But then the first memory I have of, because of all my operations, I think that was the toughest thing about growing up is I'm a very driven person, but maybe one of the positive things as well, why I have such a uh, composed mindset maybe is, um, you know, you tell a 12 year old that just wants to be one, well, be the best golfer in the world um, that, okay, you're going to have an operation, you're out for six months. Your foot's going to then be a bit better. It will be in the summer holidays as well. You know, school, I had to have the time off. So you know, I would have it at the very start of summer and then be on crutches by September, October to get back into school and then have to start golfing, you know, January, December time. And I had that about four or five times in from 12 to 18. Um, so I didn't have much summer golf. So that was, I think, the toughest bit was I was always very naturally talented when I was a kid. Then the foot deformity meant I couldn't turn through the ball as much as they got worse. But also, all I wanted to do was compete at the highest level. But I couldn't get my handicap down low enough because I only would have six months in a year um, and be out and have to obviously learn, not learn the game again, but as in get up to standard. Um, so I missed out on a lot of junior, high level junior events. But the first one I remember was I'd just come off my first, maybe my first major foot reconstruction at 16. Um, and three months after or two months after walking, being able to walk, I was playing a tournament. And it was my first, it was called the Lee Westwood Trophy. Um, uh, and a fun fact is Lee Westwood is actually with the same sports agency I'm with. So like, like I sometimes think about that, like not, not, to, not in a, you know it's only a sports agency but they're awesome people but as in that's pretty cool you know I played the Lee Westwood Trophy and I'm, I'm sort of not rubbing shoulders with him but uh in I guess and uh I remember teeing it up and seeing the England golf logo uh behind me and I'd worked for five years mentally just in hospital beds for months visualizing what it would be like to be under pressure how I'd perform when I hit poor shots my main what I used to really love focusing on was my reaction so how would I react when I hit a good shot? How would I react when I hit a poor shot? And keeping that as not even because I'm quite I'm quite a bubbly person, but as in composed as I possibly can. I I almost sometimes I make a conscious effort to try not 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 show emotion, but hit if I hit the worst shot in a tournament, I often try to stay as composed as possible. More so, my playing partners will see that and be like, oh God, I can't beat him. You know, even you know, I always said I I'll never beat myself. You know. If you beat me, you know, fair play to you and congrats, but I'll never let you beat me because I've uh, let myself down, if that makes sense. And anyway, so saw that tee box with the England golf logo and I stood there with a hybrid and I just remember thinking, I was like, I'm so proud of myself. <laughs> and all I was doing was hitting the first tee shot in the event. Um, and just not, not again, not proud in like, a, I think I'm better than anyone else, but obviously I knew the operations I'd been through and how hard I'd worked just to get to that point. And maybe all the other kids had sort of just turned up to, you know, just thinking, oh, here's another event. And I'd worked so hard just to get to that point. And I, I just thought, right, you've worked extremely hard. Step up, swing, you know, you're good. Like, that's why I practice is so I don't have to think when I play. You know, I think I hear people say, oh, my swing shorts when I'm playing and stuff. I'm like, isn't that what practice is for? Aren't you going to practice so much that it becomes sort of natural? Um, you know, so when I play my best golf, I don't have any. And anyway... I picked a tree, swung and absolutely flushed this hybrid, knocked it on the green, hold a 20 footer for birdie. And I was sort of like, ah, here we go. And I think I finished that event, four round event, one under par and seventh. And I and my, and my coach at the time was obviously extremely proud of me. I was absolutely chuffed. 
Um, yeah, that was probably the first time I experienced playing a high level event. And now, and that's maybe the lovely thing about progression is now I look at that event and obviously it's in my eyes, it's a fairly low event for the ones I'm doing now, but doesn't mean it didn't mean as much as when I've done well in bigger events now. It's almost the same feelings. Does that make, I think I learned that early on as well. I think, you know, I won my first major championship this year at the US Adaptive Open. I aim to hopefully win an able-bodied major in the future, but you know that's that's still a major. It's still uh, a pretty cool achievement, and the pressures were still the same as when I was playing the Lee Westwood Trophy. You know, I think it's just that you grow, you grow into the tournaments. Um, but you know, back then that Lee Westwood Trophy was my major. You know, yeah, I think there's so many fascinating points there, and you talk about this staircase of climbing through your career. And as you say, you know, pressure on a particular day, lower in the staircase and then on the big stage in a big tournament, it feels exactly the same to you. You know, it's still pressure. Um, And also that tension between a simmering ambition and an urgency to want to prove yourself and win, but also the patience that you need. How I don't think we talk about patience a lot enough, really. So what do you think? How important do you think patience is? And You've talked about these operations almost delaying your progress and you could get quite bitter and frustrated about that. But how have you reframed that and stayed patient? Um, I'm smiling to myself at the moment because if my mum and dad listen to this and hear you call me patient, they'll be giggling their heads off. But as a person, I'm very impatient. You know, I want everything, not want everything now, but, I, you know, I'd love to have five majors right now. Yeah, I just want, I want as much as I can. But I think as a sportsman and as someone that, uh, maybe it's reflected on my life quite a lot. I know that patience is how you achieve things. You know, you put in the hard work. I, it's called delayed gratification. I remember reading that when I was really young. I mean, I was, I was 12 years old, looking at again Lee Westwood, a bit ahead of the going to play the Lee Westwood Trophy, and googled what was Lee Westwood's handicap at you know 16, and it was like our oh, plus two, and I was off like, let's when I was 16, I was off about 10. Like I wasn't you know or seven, maybe a bit better than that, but. Um, you know, I didn't see that as obviously I was like, damn, that's a, I'm a bit behind the eight ball. But I sort of thought, OK, well, Lee Westwood hasn't had four operations, but also. Um, right. So it is, is where you start doesn't determine where you finish, I guess. And um, yeah, so I just have always been. I think, yeah, patient the right word, but also not patient in the activities I do each day. Patient in wanting the results. So I say this delayed gratification, but I think that's a way of saying it's how I cope with the operations is my mum and dad, I'd do the heads in. I just want, you know, I'd do the operation, be like, right, I want to get up. I want to do, I'd have an operation on my left foot and I'd be like, right, let's get the right leg stronger. And I was like, Kit, just, you know, you know, it's still high as a kite. Let's just <laughs> take a chill pill for a bit. But um, I think it's always giving myself tasks and stuff to do in a day that keep you mentally focused and you see small progressions you know there's videos of me doing like one leg sit-ups on on a chair with my foot in a boot and for me even though I maybe wasn't playing the tournaments my mates were playing and winning the tournaments I wanted to win I was still improving and I think that gradual improvement I knew right eventually all this hard work will pay off this is just my story this is how my life is and everyone I think that's the other thing when you look at famous people uh, well not famous people but elite sportsmen Johnny Wilkinson uh, Lee Westwood Ian Poulter Tiger Woods you know you cannot 
it's not like it's not one size fits all it's not right everyone was an elite player when they were a kid or everyone had the perfect upbringing or you know it's just maybe a tenacity to want to be a good sportsman and so that's all I took from it I said right it doesn't really matter what my story is at the start I just look forward to what it will be at the end and um, yeah I think as you said you can either get bitter or you can get better and that's that's a mantra I've always used as well it's like there's no point not no point but as in if I want one of the things I always say to people when they say how are you so focused in events or how are you how do you put so much work in or how do you stay patient and how do you stay composed I just say the simplest answer is how bad do you want to win I I am not an impatient person but I know being patient means I'll win so I will be patient does that make sense like I that if you were to highlight my life in any sentence it would be how bad do you want to win and then that means you will do anything to make sure that happens. And I think, you know, if you can throw all the excuses under the sun, but if I'm impatient in an event and it causes me to lose, you know, you're the only one that's done that to yourself. So you might as well just, you know, how bad do you want to win? Can you change your attitude? Can you focus more than anyone else? Can you let the bad breaks not affect you? Can you let the good breaks build your confidence? Can you, you know, I always say for myself, I think in events I try and, not win it for the first three days doesn't like I just try to give myself a chance if I have a chance for the last three or four holes uh you know or the back nine on the final day then you see right competitive kip who wants to stand on everyone's throat but I've learned that I can't go out all guns blazing from the start of the event because otherwise I might you know I take on too many flags I won't be that patient kip but three or four holes in with the last you know needing to pull off shots oh I let I just let myself have fun you know that's I fire at everything and sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but I'll always try and win. But I've sort of learned that there's a time and a place to uh, let uh, motivated Kip out, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting to think that these, um, you know, pauses in your development because of the operations have perhaps taught you this all important patience that it's almost coming back to that, you know, control the controllables. If you've just had an operation and you can't walk for, you know, a few weeks, then that's a time to be incredibly patient. But actually, when you are fit and you are ready, that's a time, you know, to put your foot on the pedal and, and really work hard and, and stretch yourself and, and, you know, be impatient. So I guess that's a great skill to to be able to build into your performance. But I was fascinated to hear you talk about your visualization. Lots of people would just visualize themselves doing a great sales pitch or, you know, bowling a great ball or whatever it might be, or great taking a great penalty. But you were visualizing your behavior after the performance and trying to keep that really balanced. And we all know that sports characterized by these polar extremes of being a winner or a loser, a hero or a villain. Uh, and I was fascinated to hear that you were trying to minimize the, you know, emotional roller coaster, if you like, and and stay slightly robotic and and you know deta detached from the emotion. So tell me a little bit more about how you actually do that. You you hit a bad shot or whatever. How would you recover from that and stay mm -hmm. calm? Yeah, so I think detached from the situation is a brilliant way to say it. I think you know. It's not that I know where I am at. You know, I know if I've got a putt to win, I love that feeling. You know, I think anyone that wants to be an elite level sportsman, I hear I hear uh, golfers sometimes say, oh, I don't check the leaderboard. I'm like, you don't you want to win? Like, isn't that why we're here? 
I love checking the leaderboard. I love knowing where I am. I love feeling the pressure. That's why I do this. Um, I wouldn't want to limit the feelings of pressure, but I would want to detach myself from the emotions of it. Does that make sense? And that's what I would be practicing in my head. And I think well, one one tip I've used in the last few year, uh, year um, my coach Stephen Orr, uh, something I, I've always done this in my head, but what where he's trying to get me to do now is write things down more, um, which naturally I'm not the best at. I'm a bit of a slow writer, but um, I just I've always been a good reflector in my own head. But getting it out on paper, putting it in other people's views, you know, putting it in his eyes, putting it in my caddy Ben's eyes allows me to get also other perspectives. So we learn, I learn quicker out of it is and anyway i i'd put maybe two tasks i want to achieve that day maybe right let's you know for that round okay uh i want to stay fully present uh and then next one's like i want to um have a giggle you know or enjoy it you know and i think giving yourself small tasks to do during the tournament gives you a focus to stay away so it might be right today if maybe the previous tournament i felt myself get a bit heated and be like, right today we're gonna not you know not react to any shots or not react to any poor shots you know stay composed chin up head back you know walk powerfully um all a bit cliche but it almost it means that it's a way of me tricking my brain to the moment i see that ball not do what i want right that the one aim of that day is to stay you know it's almost like can you do and it's again it goes back to how bad you want to win i enjoy having to control myself you know enjoy you know my urges to you know go oh for god's sake you know but it's can you actually not be not not be yourself but as in can you have that self-control to hold that in and 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 without realizing then you start doing it naturally i do it naturally now i don't i don't really get that angry or upset um but i think one of the one of the i actually heard this from dan carter was blue and red levels of thinking, I think he calls it. And I've never had any uh, training or anything like that. I've, and I think it's a time in my life where I might start looking into that and getting some expert help. Not, And I think I used to think it's because our oh, people that didn't think right have, have to have expert help. And I think pretty good. I think now it's like, right, I know I'm an elite thinker. Let's see if we can train it even better or learn the reasons how I do it and why I do it so that if I ever get into a period where I'm struggling, I know I have things to go to and stuff. And and also just a support system, you know. And I think, um, so Dan Carter was saying that he, a bit like that, is that the All Blacks used to think not have any psychology help and stuff, but because they would be like, oh, if you're seeing someone, that's a problem. Whereas now they all see on someone, again, because it's how bad do you want to win? Do you want to leave any stone, that, you know, if you're leaving a stone unturned, then that's someone else that could beat you who isn't and um he so to the red and blue levels of thinking it was he said that in and i've used similar tricks and i've i realized that when he was saying it, i've used similar tricks myself so um i'll just get i always ramble but i'll get onto the bit about what he said which was he would feel that he would hit a bad kick or throw a bad pass and he would get angry and agitated and tense and we've any elite sportsman felt it and this is what i've said about me trying to not react to my poor shots is this feeling of like just uh heated you know you've you know not hot under the color and anger but as in your thoughts are quicker you're you know you're not as composed and then there's the blue level of thinking where 
everything's composed, smooth, thought through, um, and there's not much emotion in your decision making. It's all sort of uh, very clear, clear thinking. And he said that he learned about that. And one of the tricks he'd use is smack his leg like quite hard when say throw a pass, perform a poor pass, smack his leg. And in that, the smacking of the leg would be next task. Focus on the next task, get the ball back, get in line, whatever it was. And that meant that he would be able to get back from it. He always said, it's not that you'll never go into a red zone of thinking. I now know that when I play a tournament, I'd love to, everyone would love to be in a blue zone the whole time. But the reason why the people are elite is they go into a red zone and can get back into the blue. Zone. And it's almost when that ball flies right or left for me, I think my I get into that blue zone quicker than anyone when I'm at my best. You know, it really is almost instantaneous. Um, and I'm not saying I do it every time. People would have seen me get angry in tournaments, but I'm pretty proud of how I do it. And it's that similar thing to what Dan Carter was saying. And for example, one of the things I did when I was a kid, 14 years old, couldn't walk. So I'd be putting in my living room. My dad get back from doing six hours of operations that day at 10 p.m., and now I think I'm like, God, I was a not a tough, well, I was a bit of a tough child, but I'd be like, right, dad, come help me be great, you know, and he wouldn't get any rest and he'd be up at 5 a.m. the next day. But, you know, he would sit in the living room with a phone timer, you know, iPhone timer, and I would, all I'd be focusing on was my routine. So I want my routine to be so automatic and so con uh, subconscious, oh, uh, yeah, um, not be thinking as such. Um, so it's like doing a signature and the way the reason why you might watch me hit a putt in tournaments and I'll tap my left thigh and it's only slight you might not notice it but I now do it before I hit every putt and the reason why was that was when my dad would start the timer and so I wanted the from the moment I knew what I wanted to do with that putt right tap my left thigh dad starts the timer I twirl the club twice put it behind the ball set up and go and that's always around 8.5 seconds um, something in this off season I'd like to practice a bit more I haven't maybe I've almost uh, not got complacent with it but you know sometimes you know, it's become so natural that it, it needs revisiting a little bit and um, that's something that me and my dad would do for hours you know and I think that's how I'd get to that level of uh, sort of allowing myself to be composed the whole time is almost have pre and post shot routines and you read about it now and you study it. I went to Birmingham University and did a, a golf and sports science business degree. And I remember them teaching you about it. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's what I did. But I didn't know what I was doing. I just, again, it was all under this umbrella of how bad did I want to win? And I knew, right, if I can be the most composed pressure, uh, composed person under a six footer to win, I'm probably going to hold more than other people will. Well, again, another brilliant insight. And, and what you're talking about, we've got these polar extremes of winning and losing and and that can distract you away because you know we feel it's a real threat to our identity a threat to our self-esteem if we lose so you know the pressure or a bad mistake can send you off into a spiral and that ability to stop the spiral from going oh I've played one bad shot I'm going to lose the tournament I'm going to lose my sponsors I'm never going to win a major all that sort of spiral that happens you know, can easily be stopped once you've learned these skills. But our mindset and our thinking is so central and fundamental to our performance. But how many people have coaching on the way they think? 
we think it's a weakness yeah. if there's a problem, but we never get taught it. So hearing you've developed these stories, is that these strategies is, is absolutely brilliant. And ultimately, we all want to be able to be predictable and, and consistent in the way we perform. That comes from being consistent and predictable in the way we behave. You know, our mannerisms, our shots, our techniques, and that stripped back into the middle, the bullseye, if you like, is being consistent and predictable about how you think. So what you've done yeah. is you've created control in your psychological routines and habits. That's created a set of behavioral cues and rhythms and 8.6 seconds or whatever that that's helping you to maintain a consistency and uh you know, preempting and a review and, and reflection that keeps you in that balance. And it's no surprise then that the results are becoming more consistent. And ultimately, that's what it's all about. So, you know, I think it's amazing to hear that you've done it. And like a lot of the elite performers I've interviewed and, you know, through Sporting Edge, our, our digital library, we've interviewed loads of people across different um industries and they've all found these ways of finding this control so uh, great to hear that you've done it mm. one thing that comes up a lot is confidence where do you think confidence comes from and, and how can people build confidence yeah and I think and um, just to quickly go back to a point you made there where it's like how do you react to uh, the negatives you mentioned lose sponsors so at the moment I earn my living through sponsorship you know and that's obviously a big part of how you know and I think you know I've thought about that when I've had a poor week and stuff but I think what I've realized and I maybe I learned it because my legs weren't great is no one has no Tiger Woods Novak Djokovic Johnny Wilkinson no one has has is uh exempt from self-doubt and worry that's a human nature and I think one thing I realized is well if it's human nature why 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 get sad why get angry when you think that you know, that's just normal you can't stop that that's that's human nature but how I think what I would always say is how how can you be composed enough to then snap not snap out of it but as in know that that's not a problem you know if you didn't worry then you wouldn't you couldn't be human but Tiger Woods definitely is worried but he's also been very powerful in the way he thinks and structured in the way he practices and preparing for things and the ultimate thing is I think I've learned it's not that I am exempt from self-doubt or worry. It's that I am so good at focusing on the exciting things and the things, you know, if, yeah, if you have a poor week, but then what about all the other good weeks? And with golf, I always say to people, people are like, oh, golf so hard. You're only, you know, you're a millimetre from hitting a shank or a millimetre from mishitting it. I'm like, well, then you're only a millimetre from hitting it great. You know, you only have to change one small thing or one small thing and you're flushing it again. And I think, I think that's something I've learned in the last two years is that it's not, and I wouldn't say I have much self-doubt. My dad always says, I think his, my biggest strength is how much I believe in what I can achieve. Um, just It's just a part of my being, but the, um, the practice and the effort I put in allows me to actually be like, oh, well, I've earned, I've earned the right to be able to get the trophies I'm hopefully going to achieve, you know if you practice hard enough and think good enough you're able to have poor thoughts but also just put them down to that's human nature no one no one ever has is exempt from self-doubt but everyone how quickly can you realize that really it's not a problem like it's you know yes you obviously don't want to be self-doubting when you're 
under pressure, but then that's why you've got your routines, you know, and sometimes it's sometimes I've hit shots and I'm like, oh, I'm not feeling good over this. I'm like, well, let's see if I can hit pull this shot off when I'm not feeling good and then I flush it. And that's another skill. You know, it's like you don't actually have to feel comfortable to perform under pressure. The whole point of pressure is to make you feel uncomfortable. It's, that's what I love. I love pulling, you know, uh, overachieving, as you will, you know. Um, and when you mentioned confidence, I think I am naturally very confident. I naturally, but I practice it as well. Like I, again, maybe with my legs, it's like it would be very easy to grow up and not be a very confident person. And am I always confident? Absolutely not. But am I uh did I decide long a long long time ago that well if I can't change it I might as well not let it affect my confidence and that you know and and then also to be honest putting in you know I'm going to go after this I'm going to go do some putting drills and do a few performance tests and the reason why I do performance tests regularly is you see a pattern of improvement and then the pattern of improvement you know and you know you're working on the right things you then see improvement and then you go into events and you're not thinking oh, I've hit let's call it 10 or 105 footers and you're like oh well, let's see if I can perform under pressure by practicing under pressure you know you can and then you know you can hold it you know and so that's why I do performance tests all the time is to see gradual improvement but also to see uh to practice performing under pressure you know I think not not enough people do it and I think it's one of the biggest skills there is is if you want to be an elite level tournament player or rugby player at the highest level What's the point in kicking for no sake of, you know, kicking kicking a field goal um, with no pressure applied? There should always be pressure. There should always be, you know, I always say I love I love the feeling of being uncomfortable. You know, and, that, and that's it. It's like, you know, God, you know, when you can't feel your hands or when, you know, you're so focused on something. And I mean, the way I play golf is I draw, again, this confidence thing is I, I just take a picture of where I want the ball to go. That's how I do it. Other people do it differently. But I, I um, was playing the Open Championship and the Celebration of Champions with Tom Watson. This is the first time I hit in front of millions of people. And I maybe you'd say I was under more pressure because I'd visualised this for 10, 15 years in hospital beds. But I didn't feel under pressure. It wasn't. It was almost like, right, I'm prepared. You know, this is I spoke to Lee Trevino before and he said, my biggest tip is to keep your feet moving. And I was like, well, that's a bit like my routine, you know, with, with me and my dad with the putter, there's always, there's always motion to it. It's a bit like my routine when you watch me hit a golf shot. It's, it's, all, it's the same, before I hit, I'm almost asleep. And so I, I went out and I walked over this bridge and there's millions of people. I've been, Realistically, I've been put in a scenario that I've never played in before, but I felt like I was there because I practiced it so much. Um, and because I was so excited to be there, I enjoyed it. I was walking over the bridge and, you know, I've, I realised that in tournaments now, I sort of sometimes when I'm really under a lot of pressure and it's not, it's varies week to week, but I get like a little bit of an apple in my throat. And it's, but when I get that, it's like, you know, when I first got it, it was like, oh God, what's that? But now I get it. I'm like, oh, that means I care. And also, can you go and pull off a shot whilst you're not feeling great? You know, that, I love that feeling. I love that question, you know. And um, anyway, so I was walking over this bridge because there's so many people you had to get a bridge onto the tee box. You know, I'm used to turning up to my golf club and having the only person watching me is my dog. You know, it's not. And um, I walked over and I just put on my Instagram story, I put showtime, you know, like, you know, here. And that's what my mentality was. I've practiced for so long to do this. Let's go and just have fun. And, and also I knew I'd do it. I just there was no 
doubt in my mind that I wouldn't perform well that day just because I'd practiced so hard. And I, I went down and I knew, again, you speak about the techniques I've used, the same techniques I used at the Lee Western Trophy. It was pick a leaf on that tree. I remember being under so much pressure to hit that tee shot with the hybrid. Pick a leaf on that tee. And there was a bush at St Andrews, the old course, off the first tee. And I'd hit that in the practice round. But I was like, that's not specific enough for me. I want something really specific that I'm going to... And I picked it as I walked over the bridge of these people. And it was a grey crane. I thought, right, I'm going to pipe it at that grey crane. A bit like remembering the number 24. You know, my memory's rubbish. But if if I was trying to remember a long number, I'd just repeat it and repeat it in my head. And that's basically what I do with the pictures. I just... Walking down these stairs, meeting uh, Iona Stevens, interviewed me for the TV... Then I met Tom Watson, um, Paul Laurie and Stuart Sink, shook their hands. It was like a normal day at a golf club. I took a picture next to the Claret Jug and didn't realise it was the Claret Jug until I saw the picture after the event. I didn't even know I stood next to it. But the only reason all of that was so autonomous, the only thing going through my head was that grey crane. It was just like on a, like on, almost like on a TV roll. You know, it's douche, douche, douche. Stood up, routine. Without knowing it, the ball started flying. At the, you know, I didn't don't really remember hitting it too much, and the ball was flying straight at this grey crane, and I loved it. It was great fun, and that, and I think it's that's where the confidence comes. Is almost just not being asleep, but being so focused on something. How bad do you want to win? How bad do you want to hit it at that grey crane? Can you can you focus on one small thing when there's distractions around? You know. And I then had 107 into the wind off the left. Tiger Woods was the group behind me. I had 50 degree. My dad didn't let my dad do the yardage. I got Stuart Sink's caddy to do it. Since my dad's awesome at everything, but he's never really got a yardage without a rangefinder before. So I thought, but not run on that. So it was 107. The sound of the 50 degree when I hit it was just like, honestly, I hit it. I was like, oh my God, that's so good. I was like, that is. And there's people all over, like crowds. Um, it lands. Ten, you know, it's just short of the water as well, and I hit it, and it lands just short of the flag, skips up, and then and the crowd goes, Whoa, and I've never heard a noise like it, and then it starts to do backspin and get close to the hole, and the crowd go even louder, and then I woke up, and I think, to be honest, that wasn't a tournament that day, but those first two shots were, and then after that, I enjoyed it, and I just read, and I was like, look, I'm when I when I play in tournaments, I know how focused I can be, so I often question whether I enjoy it, uh, not. I do enjoy it, but whether I'm smelling the roses, as you will, you know, um, because I'm such a focused person. And I thought, sort of like, this is the problem. I don't know how many times my dad's going to be able to caddy for me. So I thought, right, I'm going to focus on my dad for the next three holes and just what looking at him smile, carry the bag, chat to Tom Watson. That was the highlight of my day was how much he enjoyed it. But those two shots there, pulling it off under those pressure, I then woke up from that and was like, right, time to focus on my dad. But those two shots I loved it I absolutely loved it <laughs> well it's an amazing story and brilliant memory for you to to carry on into your next you know big tournament but you clearly weren't smelling the roses because you were visualizing the crane so that's uh you know your brain can only handle one thing at a time so you made a good choice but it's interesting to hear you talk you know in such a passionate way about this because I think it sounds to me like you're so ambitious and excited about winning that that's the focus all the time whereas a lot of people are scared of failure so all of these negative thoughts all of these setbacks all of these you know the weather's not good I've not got the right kit well my back feels stiff whatever it might be those are the things that almost give you an excuse 
to fail. Whereas mm. you're pointing north, if you like, you're pointing to optimism and solutions and well I can work away, I can I can win from here, I can find a way to be successful. So you are you have that burning ambition to win, which is very, you know, authentic and, and innocent and excited. And then as a result of that being really powerful everything then gets reframed to be okay well that didn't quite work well let me see how I can manage myself so that I can keep winning or let's see how I can play the next good shot and and ultimately even in the open flowing sports like rugby or football you mentioned that earlier I did some work in rugby and even though the game is you know 80 90 minutes in the open flowing sports you still have these moments where you can think about the next task, the next part of the game, the next job. And and especially in sports like tennis or, or golf or cricket, we can do that because there's a break in play between deliveries or between shots. So almost that ability to create that controlled environment, um, you know, between the shots is the key. So if you're bringing focus, mindfulness, attentional control, emotional control, that routine that keeps you in that bubble. And then when the crowd, you know, you know, raucous applause and whatever, then you break out of that and enjoy the moment. That is the zone. That's that perfect state that you found found yourself in. And I think you mentioned that, um, you know, being afraid of failure. I think maybe with my leg, maybe with my legs, I sort of not started with failure, but I've always had, you know, everyone thought I'd fail does that make sense it's never and I think for me that meant that oh well you know I don't know I think I'm ne- I've never been afraid of winning you know I think people sometimes think oh I don't want to get ahead of myself I don't want to think I'm like yes you need to be present but my god you need to know that you're about to do something great you know and you need to enjoy that and you need to try and snap, raise up to the occasion rise up to the occasion and know your practice is going to perform um but know that also I remember Kobe Bryant said something about it and maybe that that's where maybe my psychology help so far has come from is just listening to the greats of all sports to be honest you know and because there's you know what is it success leaves clues and stuff like Kobe Bryant used to say you know everyone focuses on the 2000 uh win shots I've hit you know or three pointers I've um bucketed but I've also had 2000 air balls in the you know so it's failing is part of success in the sense of you're gonna have times where johnny wilkinson didn't pull a kickoff but then you'll have times where because he didn't pull a kickoff two years ago he then didn't he kick to win the world cup i think is mm-hmm. that right exactly yep, 2003 and, and johnny you know and all those failures all led to that moment and he let the foot swing and he pulled it off and you never but you never can have that unless you're willing to fail and i you know it's not that i want to fail or i'm scared of failure but it's like i know that i would much rather be the person taking that shot and failing than the person sat on the sidelines too worried to do it because if you're too worried you're never going to experience what it's like to pull off a shot and honestly it is incredible um you know i hit i won the i said i'm won my first major um the us adaptive open at pinehurst this year and I had I was playing really good and didn't maybe have the best back nine, but still had a three shot lead. Bogeyed the seventeenth, but played it solid. Sometimes you make a bogey. Eighteen as OB through the fairway, and it's on TV. So if you want to watch me smack it OB, you can watch it. But um, through the fairway, 
And I said to my caddy, Ben, I said, is it three wood or driver off here? And I'd been driving it really well all day. And I'd hit driver the last eight times I'd played that hole in the previous two years and that year. And every time, even though I flushed it down the tight, a draw down the tight left over the trees, I remember thinking, God, this is really close to the OB. You know, if I don't get this perfect, it's OB. And so that was a question I was asking myself before I played. And on reflection, that should have been a decision me and Ben made out of emotion. And again, I learned, you know, so now we make decisions about uh, what me and my coach and Ben have told, spoke about it is coming down to the last five or six holes. What's our game plan if we're one behind? What's our game plan if we're three ahead? What's our game plan if we're four behind? And obviously four behinds go at everything and, and try to do something miraculous, which is all lovely, you know, because I've done it a few times and it's pretty cool. But um, it's it's the Ben and I learned that day that, I was had two shot lead. The only place I couldn't go was OB. So the only club I shouldn't have hit that off that tee was driver. So I hit driver OB and I didn't hit it bad. I just didn't draw it and it literally missed my target by a little bit. And Ben went, shall we hit? And the other guy was in play. And Ben went to me, went, shall we hit driver now? Uh, shall we hit three wood now? And I went, absolutely not. Now on reflection, maybe I should have hit three. But the reason why I said absolutely not was I got the privilege of standing up there. And I guess that's why I'm, is I see it as a privilege. I had to stand there after knocking it OB with cameras, people watching, me knowing I had a major on the line. And I thought, well, now if me and him were level, am I brave enough to step up and pull this off? And I, I didn't think that at the time, but that's obviously what my, I went absolutely not, got and threw me another ball, didn't speak to him the whole hole going down there because I was a bit upset we hit driver. For, anyway. Pipe the second drive, absolutely crushed it. Again, holding that vision of where I want it to go. And under that pressure, knowing if I'm not this OB again, I've lost this tournament. And that's where I wanted to be. There wasn't anywhere I wanted to be else in the world. Not that. And then had 120 in and hit a shot straight over the flag stick. Again, knowing I sort of needed to make a, a net three with the second ball to try and put you know win this tournament still. Knocked it 20 feet over the flag stick. Um, hit an awesome putt that just went over the right edge but I honestly I thought that was in I didn't know how that putt missed but the other and then the other guy made a bogey himself but so I still won but I would have gone in a playoff and but it's the fact that I knocked it OB and I still wanted to be you know I completely was so excited to hit that next drive I was so focused um, and I think that's it is you just you need to be the person that wants to be in the limelight I guess yeah and I guess you're focused on you know living the experience for yourself and pressure's a privilege you know your body feels different you you get nervous but those are the things you live for and remember and you you live in that experience whereas if you get trapped by the fear of failure what you're really doing is letting everyone else's judgment and conversation about you override your lived experience and and as you say the great champions experience the highs and lows as part of that but that's living isn't it you know to yeah. be philosophical that you know to to be fully present and and feel those emotions and feel those moments of setbacks and pride are, are what it's all about and it sounds like you're doing that brilliantly I was conscious earlier that you spoke about your cousin and losing your cousin when he was playing rugby. And, and that was obviously a really powerful life experience and something that not many people go through, um, especially so young. And you've spoken about family being so important. I'm just wondering how that affected you or maybe how you've been able to mm. harness that, you know, emotion in your career. 100%. I think that's a, a really good question is how it affected me because I think, 
four years on, it really did affect me. You know, I still get emotional about it now. I'm tearing up a bit. But Archie and myself, we never were hips to be great. We between me and him, we were texting on Snapchat and stuff. Every you know, he'd send me pictures of himself, and it sounds a bit weird now, but. He was really into his fitness, rugby player, rugby league as well. So it's not not the rugby union's any less physical, but rugby league really is you're running against a brick wall basically because you get to reset every time. So they are just they have to be built extremely strong. Um, and you know he was absolutely ripped. He had a passion for the fitness. Um, he also liked to look good, but um, he uh, you know he he would send me pictures of himself in the mirror saying what do you think of this what do you think i need to get stronger and it sounds weird but i think we had that relationship where you know he wouldn't send that maybe to his best mate because i'd be like you're a bit odd mate but i saw it as he wants to be great you know what you know i remember telling him right you know you know you're you know he's asking me what his shoulders look like and stuff and i just never because i have the same experience and like me and him were not our biggest supporters almost which again it makes me sad but um i'm i'm so pleased that he knew that i supported him um and yeah so he made his professional ra- rugby debut for uh in france um in toulouse i was at a golf event in wales i'd been on really good form and i completely missed the cut again failure i've failed millions of times on the golf course but i've also succeeded and this is what people don't realize and also knowing that i failed before is why you can succeed so much because you know it's it's not it's not uh not the end of the world it's not going to mean you can't perform next week you know and um i shot like 18 over for two rounds i and i hold the birdie butt on the last and it was like way sort of thing and so but i think the reason why i missed that cut was if I had had any chance in the last two holes to make that cut, maybe I was one off the cut line, I, I believe I would have made it. I just have a way of getting things done, you know, and um, I think I had to be playing so poor that week. So I, there was no chance of me making a weekend because I needed to be free the next day. And the reason I needed to be free the next day was I was at my good friend who I went to uni with staying at his house, James. And I woke up to a call from my mum at 6 a.m. And then it just went to like, uh, almost like a sort of out of body experience. Like, and I wasn't emotional, I wasn't crying. Um, but she said, you know, I was the only person in my family there. And she went, Archie's passed away. Then is, you know, in, oh, she, and that's what my mum's incredible at. Is she was so, you know, so I could hear the emotion, but still so composed on the phone. You know, I couldn't. I was like, why aren't you balling out? And she obviously wasn't balling out, so I didn't. And I remember going into my mate James's room and he probably thought it was weird and just sort of saying it to him, but there wasn't, I think he was sort of like, why is Kip not, you know? And I think, again, it's how bad do you want to win, but also how bad do you want to be there for your family? And as soon as my mum told me, my mum wasn't, my uncle and auntie were on a flight to France. And so my cousin Cammy and Ruby, and Finney were all at home by themselves. And I remember not letting myself feel anything until I got to their house. Because um, I needed to be composed for them and for me. Um, gosh, it, 
it's amazing how emotional it makes me still. Um, when I won the US Adaptive Open, I they asked me a question of who inspires me, and I said my dad and then Archie, and I just broke down in tears. And I mean, it's it's a positive thing to um, have someone impact your life so much. And yeah, so I he there's a hashtag we all use, the rugby team use, and I use um, ACB9. So it's Archie Campbell Bruce. Nine was his rugby number. I have it on the back of my hat. I put it in every Instagram post I do. I wear, I bring his rugby shirt to every, his, my auntie gave me his rugby shirt and I bring it to every, any time I travel. And um, I think with it being four years ago, the toughest thing is sometimes I question whether uh, I still think about him enough and stuff. But then obviously times like this where it really hits me, you know, you realise you do, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, I think he was, I said it before, he was going to win a lot of trophies. Um, and I hadn't, before he passed away, I really hadn't done much in golf. Um, and I've still not done as much as I want to do and what I think I can achieve. But I just try and win as many trophies as I can for me and him. Um, it, it was our thing. It was what we bonded over was overachieving, working hard. And I think when you didn't have many people egging you on, you know, to have someone so close egging you on that we were both only 15, 16, such, such young people, but so motivated. Um, yeah, I, I look forward to being able to share it with them eventually. Well, thanks for sharing that. And it's uh, incredibly sad, but as you say, maybe it's the gives you that extra motivation and that extra support to get through some of the tough times. And I'm sure he'd be incredibly proud of what you've achieved and, you know, the trophies that you've won already. And I'm sure you're going to go on to do more and more. Yeah. Do you want to just take a second? Are you okay? Yeah, it's all good. I got it. And I think, um, as I say, I think it's, it's a powerful thing when, again, under pressure, you realise that actually it's not, the biggest focus of my life you know winning golf tournaments is great but um me and my cousins did like 12 wishes for the new year my cousins in new zealand and i think number 11 and 12 were things about golf you know all of the others were health and and that was the important thing of not the important thing but um of archie passing is it really it, it taught me god golf really isn't that important to someone that from family members and stuff, I'm so focused and so driven that maybe I didn't uh, not think I needed family, but you know, I thought golf and winning was all I cared about, um, which is awesome that it's not. And uh, yeah, I think as I say, is he he um, he would have done amazing things. And when I'm under pressure, it's just like not many people get to live a life that is true to their values and I get to wake up every day at the moment and pursue a dream put myself under pressure and so when I've got a four footer ten footer to win it's you know no one you're not gonna be able to take the trophies with you but you're gonna take the stories and life experience and um, as I said earlier it's all our first time doing this life you know I read something the other day that you've got to be kind to your parents because it's their first time doing life as well we're all trying to navigate it as best we can and I think when you think like that, you're really like, oh, well, it's just fun. 
it's just enjoyment. You might as well just have fun whilst doing it. Well, you've got an incredible mindset and um, I think you've got some really exciting times ahead, certainly, and looking forward to watching you play. But what what would your career goals be as you start to look forward for your own career? Um, I played a few pro events towards the end of this year and I've played some before, but that I've not put turning pro on the back burner, but with the disability golf and there's no prize money in it at the moment, there wasn't. I wanted to play the biggest events I possibly can. And so that's the USAM, British Am, all the big amateur stuff. And if I get invites to pro events, it's doing those. But playing with the pros, I didn't perform well. It, well, I performed, actually, I played the Cathedral Invitational in Australia with Cam Smith, Adam Scott, Mark Leishman, and I actually played really well there. So sometimes you forget about the good things you've done. You know, it's quite easy to focus on the, oh, I didn't perform the next week, but played there and I shot three under and probably could have been five or six on the last day. And I think that was everyone was like, oh, my God, that kid in a buggy. Uh, I use for those that don't know, I, I've got an exemption to use a golf buggy in every tournament I play, which, again, that was a learning experience. You know, I never felt disabled. And it's not that I, if I I do need it to perform, like my feet get really painful. But obviously, as a kid who never wanted any help, that was, a you know, turning up to your first few events in a buggy. It was like, oh, that's, you know, that that makes you stick out more like a sore thumb. But eventually you then just it doesn't affect you it still affects you know I still think about it but it doesn't have a negative influence on me I'm like oh sod it you know let them look and, and the reality is I might be passing them in the tournament and I don't think and I think I used to think maybe everyone looked as a negative but I think everyone almost looks as a well that's pretty cool that he's you know out here um and I think so I played that event and I uh played really well on the same court Adam it's pretty cool to say you played an event that Adam Scott won you know, there's only a handful of shots behind Adam. Well, quite a few, 10 shots behind Adam, but I, didn't, I definitely didn't perform my best that week either. And I think that's pretty cool. I took a lot of confidence from that and then went to Saudi Arabia and played a pro event. Hit it amazing, but didn't score very well. But I think doing those, I want to be putting myself, I, I never want to stand still. I never want to be comfortable. And the disability golf I've become very uh, successful at and the, amateur golf I'm doing quite well at and I want to be uncomfortable so I, I my focus for the next year is to play as many pro events as I can and just you know just get excited to really step up um so that's a big focus of mine uh definitely win I'd love to hold both the adaptive open majors so we've got the G4D open which is our British open and the US adaptive which I won last year I finished second at the G4D open last year the inaugural one um i'd love to hold both of those majors at the same time and then i'd love to win the us adaptive again i, I just like winning to be on any event i play i want to win um it's actually quite interesting because i played well at the cathedral invitational with adam scott playing i went to saudi and i knew i'm playing well enough to maybe win my first asian tour event and i was level par through 12 holes on a very tough course uh sorry tough wind and I got a really unlucky break in a bunker on 13, ended up making a triple. Just It was just a horrendous break. And uh, I looked at the leadboard and now I'm plus three. And I'm thinking, oh, that might be like 30th, you know. And I only want to win. That's, you know, something I need to learn is that maybe not that win, not winning is OK, but as in it's interesting. You're, you know, obviously you've done a lot of research into this. And I now reflecting know that that was the wrong thinking. What I did next was... I. I didn't lose any focus on any of the shots I went on to hit the rest of the week, but being plus three and instead of it, when I looked up at the board, I was thinking, oh, that'd be about 30th. 
it was like 70th. I'm like, oh, sugar, I'm not going to be able to win this week. And as I say, my all I care about is winning. And I think if I'd have seen that I was 15th, I would have been able to spur on and you know have a bit of a better week. But I think fatigue of the year as well, just a long year. But um, something I was reflecting on just the other day. And I was like, right, ne- next time you do that, being plus three, a bit like you know having my legs when I was born, doesn't mean you can't go on and win the event. It just means you've got to be almost... Uh, pay, patient like like we spoke about and I wasn't patient in that moment um, and I think that's something that I want I'm really excited for in the future is to win as many golf tournaments as I can but just keep getting better I just love getting better I love the process I think that's the thing I love the most put me you know love winning tournaments but pulling off a shot that you've practiced for months to win a tournament that's way better you know the trophies are great but that's the thing I and so I just want to keep pushing myself, keep giving myself tasks to do each day that will make golf golf a challenge, make it tougher. You know, when I putt on the putting green at the moment, I'm putting to a tee. So you know, instead of a hole, um, doing performance drills to a tee. So I'm really failing at the moment. And you know, a tee is extremely hard to do, but that's the whole. And then when I go to a hole, it will fit. You know, I should my performance should hopefully be a lot higher. So yeah, that that's just it to be honest. Brilliant and. Um... Quick question: Do you think the golf should be in the Paralympics? Um, gosh, it's uh, how long do you have? Because I think um, it, it definitely should, but at the moment, there with disability golf, we're hoping for prize funds and stuff soon, just because that inspires people. People get inspired by Lionel Messi pulling off, uh, uh, you know, incredible goals, and people get inspired by there's someone called Juan Pastigo that. If anyone wants to Google him, you will be absolutely blown away. Brendan Lawler, my other playing, you know, he's got, uh, so Juan's got one leg, um, carries, hits a driver 270 carry. Honestly, I've seen people record him and they're recording, they record me and they're like, oh, nice shot, you know, but they record him and you hear them go, wow, you know, you know, out of body sort of, they were not expecting a move like that. Brendan Lawler's got short stature, carries it, or not short stature, but he's got a disability, and a result is that he's got short bones and short stature. But um, he carries 250, best short, one of the best short games you've ever seen. And you know, and then you hear that he had um, a heart problem as a kid because of his disability, and he had all of that. And then he doesn't have his fingers don't grip a club, and you think you you play that well. And I think I just admire my competitors as much as anyone. Um, but I think. It should be in the Paralympics because it will inspire people. But at the moment, we for disability athletes to become not not global icons, but as in for people to see us, we have to be around a lot. We have to be around 10, 12 weeks a year to do these events, but we don't get paid for it. Um, and we've only just started getting expenses covered. And the opportunities the DP World Tour are providing are incredible because obviously it allows for the sponsorship. But um, the Paralympics... Uh, is definitely needed but at first i think it would be a pro tour for disability golf or because there are we just need to be able to afford to do it every week does that make sense it's not um and then as i say the paralympics i really hope it will be i think it will be an awesome thing when it is um there's a few complications with it at the moment but we'll get there i think i always say this to people and maybe finish on this note is i'm so ex- i'm so pleased that uh you know obviously all the people with the disability golf associations that have helped organize all of this have been around for 25 years and then obviously people with disabilities playing golf have been around a lot longer 
and they've done incredible work for not much success, this delayed gratification, as you will. Um, but all of their hard work has meant that me and Brendan and Juan are starting to get sponsors and starting to play for a living in the sense of being able to play every day. Um, so I'm very fortunate and all grateful for all of their hard work, the people before me. But I think um, it's it's definitely exciting with that I'm at a point where it's sort of maybe started to take off a little bit and I to grow things. As anyone that listens, I've I've grown myself. I've grown into a sports person. I've grown with my disability. I I love. In school, science class, maths, I was actually no good at maths, but for example, in maths, I got predicted a D before the exam and two months before I then asked, right, can I go into the higher paper instead of doing foundation? And they were like, oh, I'm not sure. Went into the higher paper, they said fine, and I got a B. You know, I just worked so hard. Uh, physics, GCSE, I mean, it's only GCSEs, but fi- um, physics, GCSE, got predicted an E before the exam. I got 98%. I think I've always just loved the hard work and the growth and the opportunity to grow this disability sport, disability golf into something incredible for future generations. And to almost have to do the hard, not the hard graft, but as in maybe not get all the full reward. But the people in 20 years, 15 years might be a 18 year old with a Ferrari, you know, or just being able to live a full, you know. That that's really exciting. I think, as I say, having to go through this and maybe be a bit of an influence in the Paralympics and how a very small role, extremely small role. But you know, when it is in the Paralympics, it'd be pretty cool, as well as all the other people before me, to say we've done our part to get it there. Um, it's pretty exciting. Well, I'm sure you're going to inspire thousands of people, and uh, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Where, where's the best place for people to follow you, Kip? Where's the your sort of channels that you've got? um just just instagram mainly um quite active on there i don't use twitter or anything even though my agent asked me to i probably should start but um yeah uh instagram just kit popa um yeah yeah you see me with novak Djokovic on there which is pretty cool like i was looking through it the other day just trying to reflect on the year and all the last two years and i started giggling to myself you know there's a video of me at the home of golf hitting that three wood i t- spoke about earlier i'm like god 12 year old kit would be having the time of his life right now so yeah just instagram good stuff well i'll add those um links to the show notes as well but it's been a real privilege to speak to you thanks so much for getting up early in the morning in new zealand and i hope your training and preparation for the next tournament goes really well so thanks again kip that's a pleasure thank you well i hope you enjoyed that extended episode with kip popert what an honest authentic and positive guy I really hope that he gets the chance to continue his dream of becoming a sporting trailblazer. And especially in the year of the Paralympics, it's stories like this that I think can help us all to maintain some good perspective and give us that shot of inspiration we need to tackle our own goals. I've had a busy start to the year with a couple of keynote speeches already and we've got some exciting news coming from Sporting Edge in the next few weeks. So make sure you follow me on LinkedIn and to see how you can benefit from those opportunities. I hope you have a great start to the year, and I hope 2024 is a brilliant one for you personally and professionally. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. 
If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.